Good morning again. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as the senior pastor here at Redeemer Church of Dubai. Let me ask you a few questions as we begin today. Do you want to live a remarkable life? Do you want to make a difference in the world? Do you desire to contribute to the world? To make some kind of difference for God? I know I do. I don't want to waste my life. I want my life to count for something. C.T. Studd, the great British missionary to China and Africa, once wrote in a poem, Only one life will soon be passed. One life here on earth. That's all we get. So what is the mark of a life that counts for God? This is especially important to consider when life doesn't go the way we planned, which is pretty much always, isn't it? It's confusing. I assume if I asked each of you this morning, if you thought your life would go the exact way it has, say, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, if you thought everything that has come to pass would have come to pass, I would think every single one of us would say, no, no, I didn't know my life would end up this way. Many of us didn't envision living in Dubai. To be honest, 10 years ago, now this is true confessions of a pastor, I couldn't even find Dubai on a map. I failed geography class and I had no idea where Dubai was or what country it was in. Now, some of us here have very difficult living circumstances, work circumstances. Many of us live apart from our spouse or children. Some of us are working occupations far outside our field of training. Only one life will soon be passed. How do we honor God with this life he's given us, this one life? Well, this morning we'll be looking at the last years of Jacob's life. And we'll see in these three chapters a picture of how to live a remarkable life when nothing makes sense. And I have just one point today. If you're taking notes, just one point, nice and easy, here it is. The point of the text. A remarkable life is one lived by faith in the God who has the whole world in his hands. A remarkable life is one lived by faith. But not just faith in anything. Faith in the God who has the whole world in his hands. Faith in the God who is in control over everything. Faith in the God who is sovereign. Faith in the God who providentially brings all things to pass. It is this God that we are to have faith in. And that is the mark of a remarkable life. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 46. We're towards the end of this magnificent first book in our Bibles. And we'll be looking at three chapters today. 46, 47, And 48, just to catch us up to speed, Joseph hadn't seen his brothers for over 20 years. 
until they show up looking for food during the famine and Joseph recognizes them. He puts them through a series of tests until he finds that they're truly repentant. Joseph then reveals himself to them and they have an amazing reunion after two decades. But Joseph hasn't seen dad yet. There's no food in Canaan. So Joseph asks Jacob and the whole family to come on over to Egypt. We'll pick up the story in chapter 46, verse 1. And it's here that the text is going to zoom in specifically on Jacob, on Joseph's father, on the patriarch of the family in his final years of his life. Verse 1. So Israel, that's another name for Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Jacob really wants to see his son, so he starts out on the way. But before he leaves Canaan, the promised land, he gets to Beersheba. This is as far south as you could get in the promised land without leaving it. It's the area where Isaac had worshipped years earlier. He wants to see his son, but it's not so easy to leave. This was the land God promised to his people. In the first Lord of the Rings movie, if you've seen it, The Fellowship of the Ring, there's a part in the movie where one hobbit, Samwise Gamgee, says to his best friend, another hobbit, Frodo, while they're on an epic journey, he says, this is it. If I take one more step, I'll be the farthest away from home that I've ever been. For those two hobbits, it was a decisive break from everything they'd ever known. It was launching them into the great unknown. Well, this was the same thing for Jacob. This was an epic move. This last step outside of the promised land was an epic moment, an epic step. Because it would have seemed backwards to the Abrahamic covenant. That covenant to his forefather Abraham promised land and seed and blessing. Jacob would be doing the very thing God told him not to do. Do you see that? To, to leave and go in the opposite direction. Well, Jacob takes this rather seriously. He worships the same God of his father Isaac and grandfather Abraham. He wants to know the will of God in this situation. This is a new move for Jacob, isn't it? He's well over a hundred years old. And now, all of a sudden, he wants to seek God's will for the future. This is not normally what we see Jacob do in the text. He's a man of impulse. A man of passion and emotion. And now he stops. He waits for God. And in God's kindness, after decades of silence, God speaks to Jacob. Verse 2. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God speaks to him. God speaks in similar ways on a few occasions in Scripture. When Abraham was about to offer Isaac there on the altar, 
God cries out, Abraham, Abraham. When Samuel uh, is called to be a prophet, God calls out to him, Samuel, Samuel. And then centuries later, we know there on the road to Damascus, there's Saul who's going there to persecute Christians. God calls out to him, Saul, Saul. Each time there was a crisis in this person's life. And once again, God enters into a person's life in a moment of crisis. Jacob, 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 it's okay. I know this doesn't make any sense at all, but yes, go. You should leave the land that I promised to you. The land that I told you not to leave. Move to that foreign land called Egypt. It's okay, go. And God graciously confirms the promises of the covenant. He says, they'll they'll continue. You'll be a great nation, verse 3. I'll be with you, verse 4. Jacob may be leaving the land of promise, but he was not leaving the God of promise. And he would indeed bring them back out of the land. An early reference perhaps to the Exodus, verse 4. Now, this can't make any sense to Jacob. He's 130 years old, not exactly the time to uproot your family to a foreign land. This wasn't just a little visit. It was a big move, especially to Egypt. Now, when I turn 130, this is not what I want to be doing. When I'm 130, all I want to do is sit in my special chair and only move perhaps to get a double cheeseburger or something to eat. No, this is a big move. This is like packing up from the East Coast, from Kelba or from Frugera or from Corfacan and saying, hey, walk. You're 130, go, go, get carried, go over to downtown Dubai where you're going you're gonna to live the rest of your life. God doesn't even tell them what would happen in Egypt. Go. Doesn't tell them how he'll get them out of Egypt. Just go. But God does say one thing. I'm with you. My promises will come to fruition. That's all Jacob knew. And that's all he needed to know to obey. See, by faith, Jacob crossed out of the promised land. Now, friend... I don't know how you're doing this morning, but maybe today you feel like you're going in the wrong direction. Looks that way for Jacob. Maybe Dubai is a bit like Egypt for you. It's not what you thought it would be like. And you have no idea how long you'll be here. Maybe your plans have not come to pass. You had plans, you had ambitions, you had dreams when you got on that airplane and moved here? I know for me, my time here has not been what I expected. Our family has been here for seven and a half years and pretty much everything has gone differently than we planned. My health has been difficult. I've had a number of surgeries and procedures since arriving here. Many of you know last month I I had a terrible fall and fell on my right elbow and left hand that set off even more of an increased pain in both of my arms due to the nerve disorder that I had. Didn't, didn't know about those things. Didn't know my health would get worse. Didn't know that I'd be dealing with this. 
Now, the church has been incredible, but I could never have predicted what has happened in this church. There have been some difficult times, and there have been the most amazing days of my life. Well, how about you? Has life thrown you some surprises, some unexpected surprises? Maybe you thought you'd be married by now or have children. Maybe maybe you thought your career would be at a certain point. You came here, you accepted what you thought was your dream job, only to be cheated out of wages or perhaps to be lied to about your job duties. Or maybe just things haven't panned out. You thought your, your career would end up in, in this place. And it just hasn't happened. Maybe you, maybe you never thought you'd face the family pressures you're facing. Maybe you became a believer here. Maybe God brought you to the Middle East to come to faith in Jesus. And I know he has done that for many of you. Maybe you had no thoughts or expectations or plan that now your parents or your siblings would persecute you for your faith. You didn't even know Jesus when you came, much less be ostracized by your family. Unexpected health issues, you had no idea. And certainly Jacob had no idea that at the age of 130, he would move everything he owned and every member of his family to Egypt, out of the promised land. But Jacob consults God. A remarkable life is one lived by faith in the God who has the whole world in his hands. It's a life that consults God because God's in charge. And Jacob finally gets it. It's taken years, but he finally gets it. And just as a word of caution for all of us, as we consider these verses, when we're faced with a big life decision, we should always ask, Is God in this? Does God want this? We should always consult God. And we find these answers primarily in his word. God's word is the primary way God speaks to his people today. We read his word. We submit to his revealed will in his word. We pray for guidance. We seek counsel from other members of the body of Christ. For big things like... Should I marry this person? God, do they love Jesus? Do they make me love Jesus more? Should I move to the city? Oh God, is there a healthy church in this city? God, should I take this job? God, will it benefit me spiritually to take this position? See, when you face big decisions, and of course we should consult with God for the smaller decisions too. Don't face those decisions alone. Go to God. Ask for his guidance. And then here's a second step to get confirmation on how you think God is leading you. Go to your church for confirmation. We're all too easily deceived by what we think is God's will. It's entirely possible that the reason you're feeling unsettled in the direction of your life is because, in fact, you're going in the wrong direction. Don't be deceived, friend. We need God's wisdom. Be a hearer of God's word 
Don't merely listen to it and then turn around forgetting it and deceiving yourself. We desperately need each other in this regard. If you're not a member of this church or another healthy gospel preaching church, then join one. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, know that whether you'll follow Jesus is the biggest decision you'll ever make. And if you're not following Jesus, then you've currently made a decision not to follow Jesus. Friend, it's the biggest decision you can make. See, on our own, we're just like Jacob of old. We're writing the script of our own lives our own way. And that script would tell us to work hard, to try to earn heaven on our own. But the problem is we could never do that on our own. The Bible is clear. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve death. We deserve judgment. Our sin against the holy God couldn't merely just be wiped away. God couldn't just turn his head away if he was to be perfect and just and holy and perfectly loving. He couldn't just turn his head on sin against the infinite God. No, punishment must be given. We are all condemned and without hope apart from God's intervention. Well, thankfully, God did intervene. We've been singing the songs about Christmas this morning, about how God came to us. That's the message of Christmas, that there was a problem. But God didn't just stay away. Jesus came as a man. Fully God, fully man. Born to die. Born to save his people from their sins. That's Christmas. That there is hope. That there's hope. That baby lived a perfect life, and then as an adult, he marched to the cross to pay the penalty for his people's sins. If we would respond in repentance and belief. If you're here and you haven't yet believed, me and any of the elders or staff would love to talk with you. We'd love to talk with you about this biggest decision of your life. There's nothing bigger than who you're going to follow Talk to the person who brought you here today. Talk to the person sitting next to you about this if you still haven't decided to follow Christ. Following Christ is the most important decision you could ever make. When if you're a member, just further application, involve the elders in your big decisions. Let us know if you're interested in marriage. Getting married isn't the same as buying a new car, buying new clothes. Buying a house. Getting married is a decision of lifelong proportions. After placing your faith in Christ, there's not really a bigger decision you'll face than whether to make a lifelong covenant with another person. Or whether you move to another city or country. Don't just take a job because you'll make more money or further your career. Actually, let me say this. Don't ever just take a job because you'll make more money or further your career. Don't ever do that just for those things. Make sure it's a good move for you spiritually. Now, I love the encouragement I get from hearing stories of teenagers in this church that are choosing to go to a specific university because there's a healthy church in that city. I love hearing stories of men and women in this church who are thinking about moving to a place for work in order to minister in that place. No, is that move, is that school, is that job going to be good for me spiritually? Is it a place where I can minister the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it a place where I can make much of Jesus? 
Friends, those are the questions we should be asking. Talk to, talk to the elders about your big life decisions. Don't let it be a surprise to us. Talk to other members about these choices you face. And when you talk to us and when you talk to one another, be teachable. Be humble. Be open that at the very least the person who's talking to you might have something to speak into your situation. Don't immediately put it off. And make a decision that honors God. That's what Jacob is doing here. I mean, it looks crazy. But for God, the straight line of his will often looks like a bunch of squiggly lines to us. It's not the shortest or easiest route, but it's God's route. Remember, God is doing a million things in your life that you can't see. And a remarkable life is one lived by faith in the God who has the whole world in his hands. Psalm 103 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. He is in control. It may not make sense, but when God says go, I'll be with you, you go. And so Jacob goes. And everybody and everything goes. Verse 5. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Everything was loaded up. Jacob took everything and leaves the promised land by faith. By faith, Jacob takes it all. Every single family member went. Verses 8 through 25 lists everybody in the family, in case you want to know. Everybody went. And then in verse 27, And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Everybody came. 70 could be exact. It could be a round number, as it's often used in Scripture, to mean completeness. The point is, Jacob left no man or woman, or livestock, or belonging, or anything in the promised land. This was a complete move. Jacob couldn't see all that God was doing. But God was doing a lot behind the scenes, wasn't he? Probably more than we can even surmise. God was going to provide food for the people of God to survive. God was going to preserve the people of God's identity. They were struggling in Canaan. They were succumbing to intermarriage that they weren't supposed to do. But Egyptians, they would never mix with shepherds. And so their family would be left alone. And of course, Jacob would get to see his son after all these years. The verse 28, Jacob gets sent ahead of him to, to lead the group. Or Judah, I mean, gets, gets sent ahead of him. Judah's now the leader. He, he goes, but Joseph can't wait to see his dad. Verse 29. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. It would have been unheard of for Joseph to prepare his own chariot 
but he can't handle it anymore. He gets his horse ready and he starts going down the road. All the hurts of the past racing through his mind, prison, slavery, loneliness, missing his family. And then what must have been a sweet moment, father and son embrace. When I think of moments like this, I think of the arrivals hall at the airport. You know, when you see husbands and, and wives who haven't seen each other for a long time just come up to each other and embrace. Or you see people from the military coming home. Maybe you see these videos of people from the military surprising their family and these em- embraces with their children and spouse. Well, this is those scenes times a hundred. This is one epic father-son reunion. Who knows how long they held each other? Dad hasn't seen his son in what seems like forever. He wasn't there for his wedding day. Oh, you have kids, Joseph? I'd love to see them. How are you doing? How did this happen anyway, governor of Egypt? And how, did, how many lives have you saved? I thought you were dead. His son had come back to life. And then they go in to meet Pharaoh. But Joseph prepares them. Joseph gives his family some instructions. Of course, he knows Pharaoh. He knows Egypt. And verse 31, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Well, Joseph's being shrewd here. His family are shepherds, but they also manage livestock. He coaches them and says, hey, when you talk to Pharaoh, tell them that you work with livestock. Tell them that that's your occupation. Don't mention that shepherding part. You know, Israelites themselves were looked down upon by the Egyptians. But shepherds were even worse. So to be an Israelite shepherd was like the bottom rung of society. It was the worst thing you could do. Joseph's hoping here that his family finds favor with Pharaoh, that they can live in beautiful Goshen outside the capital city. Well, after getting instructions, the brothers talk to Pharaoh in chapter 47, verse 1. Joseph goes in and tells Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. (laughs) They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Now, what is Joseph thinking? Guys, what did I just tell you? What did I just say? Didn't I not just tell you to tell Pharaoh that you're keeper of livestock and not mention that shepherding thing? No, the brother's going, hey, Pharaoh, we're a bunch of shepherds from Israel. Nice to meet you. I hope you like us. 
unbelievable. But perhaps more shocking was Pharaoh's response. Verse 5. After all that, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best land. Amazing. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able, able men among you, put them in charge of my livestock. Unbelievable. Pharaoh says, your guys can have it all. Go live in Goshen. It's the most beautiful land. Why don't you take it? And hey, if they have skills, they can even care for my cattle. This is more than they could have ever wished for. No disregard for them being shepherds. In fact, if anything, maybe it helped them in God's sovereignty. Maybe Pharaoh was happy for them to not live right in the capital, but for them as shepherds from Israel to live outside the capital in the land of Goshen. Maybe that was a good idea according to Pharaoh too. Well, notice the contrast here between them and the Egyptians in verses 13 through 26. The Egyptians, during the upcoming years, they lack resources that leads them to eventually sell their livestock and even themselves to Pharaoh in order to eat. While the Egyptians sold their animals, Jacob's sons keep the Egyptians' livestock. While the Egyptians were forced to sell land to survive, Jacob and his sons have the best land. And while the Egyptians sold themselves as slaves to Pharaoh, Jacob's family was free. And verse 27 says they were fruitful and multiplied. God is building up his people even in Egypt. God was with them. And Joseph was still loved by Pharaoh and the Egyptians in all this. His management of the famine wasn't mean toward the Egyptians in any way. They were actually grateful for him. They say so in verse 25. The Egyptian speaking, oh, Joseph, you have saved our lives. Well, the point is clear. God is taking care of his people. When he tells Jacob he'll be with them in Egypt, he means it. God was with them. The people of God are well on their way to being a great nation. And then Pharaoh and Jacob meet. Story continues, verse 7. Now the great patriarch meets the great Pharaoh. Joseph brought in Jacob's father. He stood before Pharaoh and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Hey, Jacob, how old are you? That's a strange way to start the conversation, isn't it? Pharaoh wants to know his age. This is not a normal meet and greet conversation or question well jacob answers says hey i'm i'm 130 years old there's been some rough days i've had a hard life i haven't seen my son for 22 years i thought he was dead we've been starving to death and now i've just left home it's not been the easiest thing but at 130 years old jacob is walking by faith we never get to an age when we stop trusting god do we 
It's often been said that faith has no expiration date. You're never mature enough. You never graduate from faith in God. Well, Pharaoh happens to be impressed by his 120 or 130 years of age. Seems like this was higher than the normal Egyptian lifespan. Jacob blesses Pharaoh, a foreign king, and the family gets settled in the best land. But as they're settling, Jacob makes Joseph promise that he'll bury him back in the promised land. Asks him to make an oath. It's so important to Jacob that they make an oath. Again, by faith, Jacob makes the request. They're just settling into Egypt. They've just moved there. There is no thought, no hope, no plan of them moving back to the promised land. They have just got there. Moving back seems like the farthest thing from reality. But Jacob believes God and believes that God will indeed do what he said he'd do and bring them back. Now, a remarkable life is one lived by faith in the God who holds the whole world in his hands. Jacob believed. And then before he dies in chapter 48, he blesses Joseph's children. Jacob essentially adopts Joseph's children. This incident is fascinating. Joseph brings Jacob to bless his children. And when an older man, when a patriarch, a grandfather gave a blessing, it was a big deal. In some ways, it predicted the future. It gave parents direction on how they were to raise the children. And it comes time for Jacob to give a blessing for the two boys. Verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. Now notice what Jacob does here. He doesn't do what we think he'll do. We assume he's going to bless the oldest with his right hand and with the special blessing. But look at what he does. Verse 14, all the way to the end of the chapter. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But the father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. 
Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now Joseph, Joseph is not very happy here, is he? It says he was displeased. Literally, that means there was evil in his eyes. Manasseh was the older boy. Culture says he should have received the main blessing. But you see what happened. Joseph brought the older child to Jacob's right hand, the younger child to Jacob's left hand. The right hand would have been the special blessing. And what happens as Jacob begins the prayer, begins the blessing, he crosses his hands to give the special blessing to the younger one. He doesn't choose who Joseph thinks he should choose. Instead, he blesses Ephraim. Now, Joseph wonders if Jacob's just gone old and senile. I mean, he is 130. Sometimes at 130, things start going crazy in your brain. Joseph wonders if dad just can't see. Grandpops, maybe you need some glasses. You're messing the whole thing up. You're blessing the wrong kid. This is important. Get it right. This is not the way it's supposed to go. But Jacob responds and says, no son, no son. I know what I'm doing. What is Jacob doing? God led him to bless Ephraim. It's because the world's ways are not God's ways. The world says the first will be first. The oldest will be the best. The strongest will win. But in God's economy, all these rules are thrown out. God does whatever is his holy will. And Jacob, after 130 years, is finally getting it. That's why he crosses his arms. He's following God's way of thinking, not his own. This has always been God's way, hasn't it? It's Isaac, not the handsome, strong Esau. Leah is the one who would give birth to Judah, the one in the line of Jesus, not Rachel. Moses, the bad communicator, would lead God's people in the Exodus. David, the youngest, the forgotten son, the son out there shepherding the sheep. He would be the one who would defeat Goliath and the one who would be king. God's ways are not man's ways. Abel instead of Cain, Jacob instead of Esau, Judah instead of Reuben, Ephraim instead of Manasseh. In Genesis, God often chooses the younger son, not the older, to carry the family heritage. But we're like Joseph here at the end of the story. We think we know the way our life should go. But God has other plans. 
We think, God, are you sure about this? This is not the way I thought it was supposed to go in Dubai or Sharjah or Elaine. I thought my life would be different. You think you could have made a mistake with my job, my career, my life, my visa, my family, my health? Jacob finally gets it. Man can make plans, but the Lord directs his steps. A remarkable life is one lived by faith in the God who has the whole world in his hands. Jacob has always tried to cheat people. He has tried to deceive God. But now he gets it. Friends, many of you are struggling with your jobs. You have got to sit back and say, God, I trust you. Many of you are struggling with your marriages. The answer is not to run from your spouse, but to run to God and your spouse and say, God, I trust you. Some of you are angry about some circumstance. Maybe there's something in your life you are truly unhappy about. You have to say, God, I don't know. I don't know the way my life should go. I don't know the way the circumstance should go. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to trust you. It's interesting that at the end of the blessing of the sons, Jacob says something fascinating. So helpful for our hearts this morning. He says, God has been my shepherd all my life to this day. That's incredible perspective. With all the difficulty he's gone through, he gives God praise and says, God, you've been with me every day. Even though Esau chased him and wanted to kill him. Even though he was tricked into marrying Leah. Even though the love of his life, Rachel, died at an early age. Even though he thought Joseph was dead. God was his shepherd. A shepherd is always there with his sheep. It's not a part-time job. It's not a job you check in from Sunday through Thursday and then take a weekend. A shepherd is always with his sheep. He feeds them night and day. He sleeps with them. He walks with them. He protects them. A shepherd's life is his sheep. And here Jacob says, God did that for me. God was with me every step of the way. 130 years, every year, every month, every day. Friends, Throughout the squiggly lines of your life, throughout all the difficulty, if you're a follower of Christ, the Lord is your shepherd. He's with you, he guides you, he cares for you, he protects you, and he loves you. Jacob gets it. Do you? Are you living a life of remarkable faith in our God? Well, many of you are familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. It's often called the Hall of Faith chapter. Men and women of faith are listed and celebrated. It tells us remarkable faith. Tells us about remarkable lives. Noah building an ark. The Israelites of the battle of Jericho. Rahab's faith in welcoming the spies. Abraham's willingness to offer Isaac up on the altar, the Red Sea crossing exodus. On and on it goes with great acts of faith, great lives of remarkable faith in the God who holds the whole world in his hands. Just remarkable pictures of faith. They're all very familiar, but you might not be aware that Jacob is listed in that chapter. And you may not know what is said of him. If you have your Bible, 
Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. I want you to see this. If you don't have a Bible, I'll read it to you. But look at Hebrews chapter 11 towards the very end of your Bibles. Here we get the words about our man Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Period. Jacob's lived 130 years. A lot of things have happened. And that's what's said of Jacob. No mention of his wrestling match. No mention of any other act of faith. That's what the author of Hebrews chooses to put in Scripture. By faith, Jacob, while dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Why did that take faith? Why was it such a big deal that it's listed in Hebrews chapter 11? Why would this be the thing listed in the faith chapter? Well, friends, it's because Jacob finally got it. He followed God's lead on which child to bless and didn't take matters into his own hands. Even though he could never have understood what God was doing, he trusted in God. He did it God's way, not Jacob's way. Jacob used to be, well, what seems right to me must be right. But now he says, God, I'm going to be faithful even when things seem crazy, even when you tell me to leave the promised land, even when you tell me, actually, no, don't bless the older child, bless the younger child. I don't know why these things are happening, God, but I'm going to choose your way by faith. Well, let me circle back to the question I asked in the beginning of the sermon. Do you want to make a difference in the world? Do you want to be remarkable? Well, you don't get there by doing remarkable things. You don't get there by trying to be great. Friends, a remarkable life is one lived by faith in the God who holds the whole world in his hands. Jacob finally got it. How about you? Do you live by faith? Let's pray. Father, would our souls find rest in you alone? Oh, would it find rest in you alone amid the world's temptations? And even in those tempting times, would we cling to our salvation? Would we as a church live by faith and set our gaze on you. When times are confusing and days are difficult, would we trust in you completely? Oh God, would we, as Redeemer Church of Dubai, live remarkable lives of faith? Would we make an impact on the world by our faith in you? Would the world see the steadfast faith that we have, and would they see something different about us? Would we, knock, would we walk not in the ways of this world, but in your ways? Would we be people 
who live by faith. Father, help us. Would we trust in you wholeheartedly? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.